0: Blindsided, shocked, and betrayed. These were the words of 19,000 college students who on December 5th, 2018, arrived at their campuses only to find that their classes had been canceled. Now, usually, when you're a college student, you, you rejoice when class is canceled. At least I did. But for these students, classes were canceled Permanently. You see, overnight, their credits had become worthless. Their degrees were now in question. Their futures were up in the air. Now, what happened? Well, after several years of concealing its problems, the company which owned Virginia College and some of its affiliated schools had its accreditation suspended. And for a college, to have your accreditation suspended is kind of a death blow. By losing accreditation, the school could no longer issue degrees, which is the reason why students come. Neither could they get funding, and they were deeply in debt. And so overnight, without any notice, 19,000 college students were essentially left empty-handed. They were deceived and duped because they trusted a system that ultimately lacked credibility and they paid a high price. You see, credibility matters. It matters not only for where you receive a diploma from, but also from whom you receive your doctrine. You see, when someone tells you, this is what God says, how do you know they're telling you the truth? How do you know that person is credible? You see, this question is obviously still relevant to us today, but it was especially relevant for the Colossian church. You see, for the Colossians, there was no completed New Testament that they could check what they were hearing against. The gospel was a relatively new message spreading into new lands. So, how would they know who is speaking the truth? How would they know what God really says? How could they tell a real gospel messenger apart from a fraud? Well, that's what our passage today really gets at, that question. You see, by way of context, last week we we covered, did we not, possibly the greatest explanation in Scripture of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Some say that, that that passage, Colossians 1, 15 through 23, some say that was even an early church hymn. And what we saw last week is that Jesus, he's not like God. Jesus is God. We saw last week that Jesus wasn't created. No, he's the creator. Jesus is subordinate to none, Paul says. He is superior to all. He alone, Jesus, brings man into a right relationship with God. And now Paul says, now look in your Bibles at the end of verse 23. Now Paul says at the end of verse 23 that of this gospel message about Jesus, he says, I, Paul, became a minister, or you could translate that a servant. And it's important to notice this order. I point this out for a purpose. You see, first Paul describes who Jesus is and what Jesus does. That's verses 15 through 23. But then Paul describes who he is and what he does. And that's today's passage. And that order, understand, that order matters to Paul because who Jesus is explains who Paul is and what Paul does. You see, for Paul, credibility in ministry is being like Christ. And what did he need credibility for? Well, in short, this passage today, Paul, his credibility is needed to pen the very letter that we're reading You see, Paul is writing an authoritative letter to the Colossians, to the Colossian church. And let's just remind ourselves briefly, did did Paul start the church in Colossae? Did he plant this church? No. Has Paul ever seen the Colossians before? No. And, And in fact, where is Paul as he's even writing this authoritative letter? Where is he? He's in prison. He's in jail. You see, you would think that the the one the, you would think that the more one is in jail, would you not think their credibility would be slightly diminished? I mean, especially someone you've never seen before. I mean, w- would you listen to on the most important eternal matters? Would you listen to a man who's in jail whom you've never seen before? The truth is, you might, but it depends on their credibility. It depends on their credentials. You see, the Colossians were being influenced by deceptive ideas coming through false teachers. And who are the Colossians going to listen to? Are they going to listen to Paul, or are they going to listen to those false teachers that have no credibility? And so, Paul, in this passage today, Paul is the model minister, so to speak. And in this text today, in typical Paul fashion, not boastfully but but humbly, Paul is going to expose the counterfeit ministers by showcasing the real. Despite having never met him, Paul's ministry is accredited by God because of the fact that it majors and minors on Christ. And it's in this way that this passage today really becomes a model for every Christian. And so our charge this morning is to strengthen the church by fulfilling your ministry in a manner that imitates and exalts Christ. And I pray that we would see that and be convinced of that through this passage. Your ministry is to strengthen the church in a manner that imitates and exalts Christ. So we're going to look this morning at four credentials for Christian ministry. And the first is to willingly suffer for the church. That's what a real minister would do. Now look at verse 24. I'll read. Paul says, verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. And yes, we we get to start with the most difficult verse in this passage. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions? And how is Paul filling that up? Well, we'll we'll get to that. But what's clear and what's sobering right out of the gate is that the first credential Paul gives to his ministry is suffering. So you understand that when Jesus spoke of following him, he didn't bury the fine print of suffering, and neither does Paul. Paul. Right up front, Jesus said to those who were following him, Matthew 16, 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, and then follow me. You see, we need to know up front that for the faithful servant of Christ, rather than discrediting your ministry, suffering actually validates it. If you're here this morning and you've been serving faithfully and yet finding ministry difficult or hard... Don't despair. You're doing the very thing that Satan hates, and that's the reason why you're occupying so much of his attention. We need to know this. We need to understand this, that suffering is a part of ministry, and we need to pray, and we need to press forward. Look at verse 24. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. He says he rejoices in sufferings. Who in the world talks like that? I mean, most people, if they told you they rejoiced in sufferings, you would, you would refer them to a counselor. <laughs> Why is it that Paul can rejoice in his sufferings? Well, he gives two reasons, and the first one is simply this, because his suffering is for you, for the Colossians. And now we need to ask, right? okay, so in what sense was Paul's sufferings for the Colossians, a people that he had never even met before? Well, the answer really lies in the book of Acts. You don't have to turn there, but but in the book of Acts, if you remember, the book of Acts ends with Paul in prison, and that's the same time, around the same time that he wrote the letter to the Colossians, And, and if you go backwards in the book of Acts, in chapter 21, that's where Paul's imprisonment begins. So we ask the question, well, then why was Paul arrested in Acts 21? Well, in short... Paul was hated and arrested because he preached salvation not only to the Jews, but also to the who? To the Gentiles. You see, when giving a defense of his ministry in Acts 22, Paul says that Jesus the Messiah personally told him to go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then the next verse in Acts 22, verse 22, says this. Here's the response of the crowd, the Jewish crowd to what Paul just said, he says, up to this word, they listened to him. They were listening to Paul just fine until he said he was, going to bring the gospel, he was going to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, told him to do that. It says, up to this word, they listened to him. But then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Listen this morning. All Paul had to do was keep the gospel off of Gentile turf and suffering would have been avoided. And it's similar for you. All you have to do is keep the gospel out of your mouth, out of your workplace, away from your unbelieving family members. Just confine that gospel to this building at this time and you too will avoid suffering. But there's at least two obvious problems with that. Number one is that Jesus, our King, has told you and Paul and I to go and to speak about him. Secondly, those people who don't know Christ, they are going to perish apart from him. You see, as as one on my way to heaven... Is it really okay for me, someone on my way to heaven, to ignore those on their way to hell because doing so would make me a little bit uncomfortable? It's not. And so Paul as our model minister, so to speak. He obeys Jesus' call. He goes, the gospel spreads, and the gospel spreads in Gentile lands, even into tiny little Gentile towns like Colossae. And so in that sense, Paul's imprisonment is directly for them. Now next, Paul Paul gives a second reason why he rejoices in his suffering. He says, uh, continuing in the verse, he says, And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now what does it mean that he is filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions? When I first studied this verse this week, I, I just looked at it and agreed with Peter that Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. <laughs> but this, this truly is a marvelous phrase. I, I went from being afraid of it and terrified to wanting to preach a whole sermon just on this one verse. It's incredible. Let me just give you two points about it, and then we'll try to tie it all together. First is that in saying that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, Paul is not at all referring to the redemptive or atoning worth or merit of Jesus' suffering on the cross. Jesus' last words that he cried out on the cross were not, it's almost finished, but I need some help. There's still some things lacking. No, you know this. Jesus' last words on the cross were, it is finished. The the complete wrath of God, due sin, was satisfied by Jesus' death for all who would look in faith to Him. In fact, it's even more specific, the the word in the original language in Colossians 1.24 for afflictions, that word is never once used in Scripture to refer to Jesus' suffering for sin. Paul, Paul is that careful with his words. He's making sure we're clear. That though we might suffer like Christ, we don't pay for sin like Christ. That's done. That's been accomplished. Okay, second point. Seeing what, what then Paul does not mean, turn in your Bibles uh, back a few pages to Philippians chapter 2, verse 30. Just a few pages to your left. Philippians 2, verse 30. This is a helpful parallel passage because it uses that same phrase, that we see in Colossians 1. In Philippians 2, verse 30, Paul is speaking of Epaphroditus, who, quote, nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life, here's the phrase, to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, the the meaning of complete what was lacking in Philippians 2 is, is actually quite clear. You see, here's kind of the context. The entire Philippian church had sent Paul a gift. They loved Paul. The whole church sent Paul a gift. But only Epaphroditus delivered the gift. I mean, obviously, it wasn't feasible for the entire church to travel land and sea to go deliver Paul's gift. And so what did Epaphroditus do? Well, one man, Epaphroditus, goes on behalf of all risks his life to bring Paul the gift. And in that sense, Epaphroditus' coming to Paul to deliver the gift completed the entire church's act of love. Well, that gets at the heart of Colossians 1.24. You see, the Philippians, they didn't lack love for Paul. What they lacked, though, was the personal display of their love. The entire church's love was real, but that love needed flesh and bones. And Epaphroditus, by coming to Paul, he, he filled up, he completed that love to Paul on behalf of the rest. And so what, what is Paul saying then about Jesus' afflictions? It's simply this. Jesus' afflictions... His sacrificial love that's displayed through his life that he displayed on earth when he was here and through his death, that sacrificial love, that needs present-day flesh and bones. That has to be seen in this world. Well, who are those flesh and bones then that are going to display Jesus' afflictions now? The answer is you. It's me. It's Paul. It's us. Think about it this way. God is determined to continually display his love to this world. And God shows the world his love by his willingness to suffer for it. Well, Jesus, where is he now? Jesus is in heaven. (laughs) Jesus can't be personally attacked right now. And so how will God continue to display Christ's sacrificial love through his afflictions? Again, the answer is us. All who have been united to Christ, we present Jesus' love to the world when we endure affliction for the sake of others coming to know him. And this shouldn't be surprising. Jesus said this would happen. He said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You see, if the world could attack Jesus, they would, but he's not here. So then who is next in line? It's us. And we need to truly digest this, even come to rejoice over this truth, which admittedly, I grant, is difficult. But there is, understand, there is a predestined, so to speak, amount of purposeful suffering that God intends for his people to endure for the sake of his name. This is God's plan. God's sovereign over it. And when you're suffering, things have not gone wrong. God is working through your rejection and even through your loss to display his love to the world. And so whoever it is, whoever the, the, the they are in your life that may be causing suffering because of your commitment to Christ, I want you to understand that whoever they are, they are worth suffering for because Jesus suffered for you. Are you willing to suffer for the good of someone else's faith? That's really the question on this first point, even in much smaller ways. I mean, my kids, for example, and your kids, if you have kids, they're not going to disciple themselves, but I want to come home from the office and relax. I want to come home and plop on the couch. Your unbelieving colleagues, they're not going to tell themselves the gospel, but we want to keep our reputation. We, we, we want to be comfortable. Well, what are we going to do, saints? Are we willing to embrace suffering for the sake of Jesus' name? I want you to understand this morning that ministry, the kind of ministry that Paul is talking about, the kind of ministry laid out in this text this morning, this is not like volunteer work. This isn't like going down to the Y and doing a two-hour service project and getting a free lunch, a t-shirt, a group photo, and getting to go home and, you know, feel good about yourself. This is Christian ministry. This involves sacrifice. I just would have you even ask James and Marie Locke about their recent trip to Nairobi where they, they really exemplified this. They they brought rejoicing. They rejoiced through affliction and doing spiritual good to the saints of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Nairobi. Are you willing to do the same? The second credential for Christian ministry is to faithfully steward your calling. Look at verse 25. Paul says, for the sake of the church, verse 25, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known. It might sound obvious, but important to fulfilling your ministry is first knowing what your ministry is. Well, for Paul, he knew what God called him to do and he devoted himself fully to it. See, Paul called his ministry, he, he saw his ministry as a stewardship. Now, what is a steward? A steward Basically, is someone who's entrusted with the responsibility of managing something that belongs to someone else. For for example, uh, one Thanksgiving, uh, many years ago, I was bragging to my aunt about my knowledge of trading stocks. Now, I was doing it all with funny money online. I mean, it was all just fake, but I was killing it. I had returns that were, were going through the roof. So I'm bragging to my aunt about how good I am trading stocks and how much fake money I'm making. Well, well, a few weeks later, after I get home, I get a letter in the mail, and my aunt sent me money, real money, <laughs> a lot of money. <laughs> it was the worst decision she's ever made. <laughs> My aunt trusted me, someone who really had no idea what I was talking about, to be a steward of her resources. Well, Christ calls you as well to be a steward. He's not making a mistake. The church belongs to Jesus, yes, but he entrusts the church to us for us to feed and to care for his body. How will we ever get this huge responsibility right? Well, we'll do it the same way Paul did it, by faithfully sticking to the Word of God. Now, specifically, what what was Paul's ministry? Look at verse 26. He says his ministry was to make the Word of God fully known. Verse 26, here's his ministry, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. You You see, you need to understand God has kept some secrets, Sometimes God reveals his secrets, sometimes he doesn't. But to Paul, a mystery was explained to him, a previous secret that God has now entrusted Paul with the responsibility of announcing this mystery to everyone, especially the church. Now, what was the mystery? Look at verse 27. It's right there. The mystery is that to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles Are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory? See, if you're a Gentile, meaning a non Jewish Christian here this morning, you understand the mystery. You didn't come to church this morning and sit in the Gentile nosebleed section, you know, in the back left corner. No, in in Christ, both Jew and Gentile, and, and every ethnicity and nationality you can name, in Christ, in Jesus, all are full recipients of every spiritual blessing, including Christ living in you. Well, in Paul's day, that was news. You see, in the Old Testament, there was always the promise of Gentiles being saved, From the very beginning, Abraham was told that in you, all the families of the earth would be blessed. There was, in fact, more than promises. There were even examples in the Old Testament, numerous examples of all types of people coming to saving faith in the Lord, Jew and Gentile alike. But nevertheless, in the Old Testament, God promised a new covenant. It was coming. One day, a new covenant would come. When according to Ezekiel 36, 27, God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. One day God is not only going to come and live with us and among us, but God says he's going to live in us. And that is an amazing promise except for the fact That in the Old Testament, every place that that promise is made that God is going to live within you, it's only ever made to the Jews. It's never made to Gentiles. It was a secret. It was a mystery. It was a mystery that Christ in the church would also come to fully indwell the Gentiles as well as the Jews and make us one in him. You can read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. It talks all about that. Well, Paul's ministry was to announce that mystery. God in Christ, he's not only forgiving Gentiles. He's not only going to live with them one day. He's fully embracing them into his family by coming to live in them. Beloved, this is your hope of glory. Jesus' presence in you now, which happens by faith, is the guarantee of your presence before him in glory in the future. And what a promise that is. Isn't that exactly what this world is looking for? A certain hope for the future. Jesus says that it's in him. It's available. You can have it now, whoever you are. It's in Christ. Well, let's just take a step back for a moment. We need to remember that through the course of this passage, Paul is refuting false teaching. That's what Paul's doing. He's refuting false teaching from false teachers. All right, they say that something is lacking in Christ. Paul says the only thing lacking in them is their willingness to suffer for him. That's why he uses that language. They say there's mysteries that are outside of Christ. They'll get you closer to glory if you believe these mysteries. No, says Paul. Paul says, no, it's, it's grace now, it's glory later. Christ in you, don't you know? That's the guarantee of glory. You already have it. He's in you. And so understand that this is as true now as it was then. To run from Christ is literally to commit spiritual suicide. It's only by trusting him and knowing him that you have assurance of future glory. As one author put it so well, he said, quote, The richest experience of God that a human can have is Jesus. There's nothing else, there's nothing to add to it. There's no other way. This is why Paul was so committed to his ministry. And let's just be reminded this morning ourselves that if you're a Christian, God has called even you. Into ministry. The word minister that Paul uses in this passage, this isn't like a special title that Paul only uses for himself. This isn't a special title for pastors. This isn't a special title for people who wear funny robes and garments in church buildings. No, no. The the word minister simply means deacon or servant. It's the same word, it's a servant. In Ephesians 4.12, we know this. Paul says that the role of pastors and teachers is to equip the saints, that is, every single Christian, for the work of what? Ministry. For building up the body of Christ. See, your call as a Christian is to be faithful to your ministry. Whether God has called you to teaching children, whether he's called you to helping people move, Cleaning this building, doing hospitality, leading a prayer meeting, whether God's called you to love your wife, to respect your husband, to faithfully do your job, to disciple your kids, to lead at the Virginian, to work with youth, to do evangelism, to help with someone's house project, even if God has given you extra cucumbers and you want to go around the church and give them out to everybody. I mean, it was like amazing. I mean, that just happened, actually, but as I was writing this sermon, I'm, I'm, it's just like at the right time, the GBC Facebook page was just like blowing up. Like, I need electrical help. Bam, somebody helped him. I got cucumbers to give away. There they are. It was just like one thing. I need someone help, helping me with moving. All right, we're on it. It was just one thing after another. And the point is, is that wherever God has deployed you, whatever resources and abilities God has given you, he's given them to you so that you would make much of Jesus by being faithful to him for the sake of the saints. He's given you a ministry, Christian. Now, maybe you're wondering this morning where to serve. Well, here's a text, like like literally a a phone text that, that I received this week from a high school student. The student said, hey, Steve, which, you know, why they don't call me Mr. Boom, I don't know. But, you know, I'm just Steve. But he said, they don't respect me. He he said, hey, Steve. Now, here's his question. This is awesome. He said, what are some ways I could serve the church in unobserved and unseen ways? Question mark. I'll just say this. Be careful who you ask that question to. (laughs) You have an attitude like that, you're going to get a ministry. You won't be lacking in service for Christ. Third credential is to exclusively speak about Christ. Look at verse 28. Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul boils Christianity down to one name, and that's Christ. Because Jesus is the hope of glory, he is the focus of Paul's message. For Paul, preaching the gospel meant preaching Christ. The focus of Paul's message, it wasn't his favorite point of Calvinism. It wasn't his favorite de- denominational distinctive, his some societal ill or political agenda. No, Paul's message, it majored on Christ. And Paul preached with urgency. It, 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 I don't think it took Paul 10 years to bring up Christ to a lost person. The, the great evangelist George Whitfield said this, quote, he said, God forbid that I should travel with anybody a quarter of an hour without speaking of Christ to them. So, so I propose that Like we have the five-second rule for food, maybe we need the 15-minute rule for evangelism. Because more than they need to know the weather or your thoughts on politics or whatever else, they need your thoughts on Christ. They need Jesus. And we're called to not be sidetracked. Paul says we proclaim him. It's the only use of we in this entire passage. He means every single believer. Your job is to proclaim Christ. Now, how do we do that, both warning and teaching? Well, we'll turn, turn into your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. I want you to see a, a practical and perfect example of it because it's in Scripture. Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 22. Peter is preaching, really the first Christian sermon, and this is an example of preaching Christ that's worth following. Acts 2, 22, Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Step one in preaching Christ is that Peter states the facts. Who is Jesus? I mean, really, who is Jesus? What did Jesus do? I mean, people need to know the basic facts of the message. God sent his son. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He did incredible miracles that proved he is God. But then he died on a cross. And why did Jesus do that? Okay, so he stated the facts. Acts 2.23, the next verse. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now notice this. Step two, Peter makes a connection. He starts by stating the facts, but then he makes a connection. And what is the connection? He makes the connection between the facts of Jesus' life and death and you. You see, Jesus didn't just die for sinners. Jesus died because of sinners. You are guilty for Jesus' death. That's what Peter's telling this crowd. This is personal. And this must be personal. You see, God's declaration when Christ hung on the cross is that we are evil. We've done wrong. There is literally a one-to-one connection between me telling a lie and Jesus' death on the cross. These are obviously hard words. They expose our sin, but that has to happen. And yet at the same time, in exposing our sin, this is also revealing the very love of God towards sinners. Well, Peter continues in Acts 2.24. Look at that. He says, God raised him up. You put him to death. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And go way farther down to verse 38. Peter said to them, concluding his message, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Notice how how many yous are in this sermon. You need to do this. You did this. You can be forgiven. The third step is that Peter calls for a response. He demands a verdict. He he gives the facts. He makes the connection. Then he calls for a response. He says that the resurrection is irrefutable proof that Jesus Christ can and will save sinners. Why do you know that? Because he overcame the grave. And so what will you do with Christ? That's Peter's question repent trust him now for the forgiveness of sins of course this hope is available even today right now this moment if you have yet to trust in christ your sin can be forgiven it will be forgiven if you turn and look to jesus And so what do we do with this gospel message? Look at Colossians 1 again. Paul says that we warn everyone and teach everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You you see, getting back to the context, unlike the false teachers who were peddling their private interpretations the false teachers, they had their you know, secret subscription to spiritual success. You know, if you just do this thing and do this, that thing for a little bit. No, Paul says, this isn't a secret. We can speak of Christ to anyone because Christ is the need of everyone. Speaking of Jesus, in other words, will never hinder your ministry. But we need to be aware of this very one thing. That speaking about Christ, speaking about Christ, that's the one thing that Satan does not want you to do. I heard a pastor say last week, quote, he said, Satan keeps people from seeing by keeping Christians from speaking. You see, the unbeliever is running toward destruction. And, and as they're running toward destruction in eternity in a lake of fire called hell, we have the answer. We are the ambassadors of Christ to tell them how to escape. And yet Satan at the same time is whispering in our ear, Not, not, not now, Christian. Not now. No, no, no wait, wait, wait for a better time to talk to them about that. Why don't, why don't you wait till they seem interested? Wait till you feel ready. Wait till you've memorized those 80 verses you're working on that you're never going to finish. You know, whatever excuse he, he, he puts in our ear to get us to not speak. We need courage, don't we, to overcome these fears. Look at the rest of verse 28. Paul preaches with an aim. He's not preaching for decisions. He's preaching for mature disciples. He says he's warning everyone. Literally, that that word, warning everyone, means to straighten out your mind. Spiritually speaking, even as believers, even as Christians, we are like ships at sea. We we start in the right place, but that is no guarantee that we stay on course. We are constantly being battered and, and hit and tossed. We need constant correction even as believers to come back to the truth of God's word to the gospel truths similarly we need teaching we need more knowledge of God you know it's it's kind of hard to love somebody that you don't know anything about and so we need teaching instruction and here again that this is our job colossians 3:16 says this says let the word of christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another This is the job of every believer. Listening to sermons is necessary, but entirely insufficient. If you're going to grow to maturity in Christ, there has to be people who know you. There has to be people who can pray with you, who know what your struggles are, who know what your fears are, who know your needs, who can minister to you. And this kind of ministry takes effort. This takes time. I mean, honestly, I can, I can change a faucet most of the time. I can change a faucet. But can I change another person? I can't even change myself. This is going to involve effort, striving, persistence, sticking with it, and most of all, speaking of Christ, pointing people to him. He is our confidence when you are weak He's the confidence you have to keep going. Lastly, the last credential is to prayerfully strengthen the saints. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 now. Paul says this He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul says he has a great struggle. We could ask the question, Well, how is Paul struggling, spiritually speaking, how is he struggling for people that he's not even around? How is that possible? Well, it's possible because the answer is prayer. While the word prayer is not in this paragraph, verses 1 through 5, that is exactly what Paul is describing by his struggle. In verse 1, Paul tells them that he's praying. Verses 2 and 3 say what he's praying, and then verses 4 and 5, he tells them why he's praying. And first, he, he mentions the struggle of prayer. Prayer is not easy. Does anyone else feel that way? It can be a struggle. Prayer is not easy. It is hard work, and yet prayer is not optional. Martin Luther said this, He said, to be a Christian without praying is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Prayer is a vital work. I can only imagine Paul and Epaphras, that guy who visited Paul, which is why we have this letter. Paul and Epaphras, I can imagine them spending much time in prayer. In Colossians 4.12, in fact, Paul even writes this. He says, Epaphras is always struggling. That's the same word from chapter 2, verse 1. He says, he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. See, Paul is wrestling in prayer for the churches. Paul understands what Jesus said many years before, that apart from me, you can do how much? You can do nothing. The realization that you can do nothing apart from Christ, that drives the faithful servant of Christ to God's throne. It's a throne you have been invited to and summoned to to beg him for help, and he helps. And for Paul, his prayer life was a great struggle. His prayer life was costly. Let me just ask you this morning, does your prayer life cost you anything? Is it ever inconvenient to you to pray? Does prayer ever take up time in your life that you would be doing something else you'd rather be doing, but instead you know the priority and power of prayer, and so you devote yourself to that? I mean, I admit I'm just growing in this area, needing to grow. But I'm convinced that once we understand the power and the privilege of prayer, you will never work without it. You won't try to do ministry. You won't try to disciple your kids. You won't try to preach a sermon. You won't try to love your wife. You won't try to go to work. You won't try to do anything apart from prayer. And if you're struggling with prayer, which I'm assuming I'm not alone, I'll give you two very quick suggestions. First is to pray the Bible. Like, that's actually the suggestion. Pray the Bible. This book is called Praying the Bible. And it will help you pray the Bible. And in fact, we're getting a bunch of free copies of this book in, uh, in a few weeks from now. So maybe don't buy it. Wait for your free copy. But it, it is excellent. It is an excellent help, this book. But second is to pray with others. There, there's a prayer meeting every Wednesday night that happens at this church building from 7 to 8.30 p.m. You can strengthen the saints, the saints in prayer by joining that meeting and even learn how to pray. Well, well, looking at verses 2 and 3, what was Paul praying? It's obvious he is praying. What was he praying? Well, in verses 2 and 3, he says, That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you boil that down, in a word, what Paul is praying for this church is for unity. You see, if the Colossians and the surrounding churches, if they embrace this new teaching that will pull them away from Christ, the result will be division. You you can't be one in heart if you're not one in mind. You know, if you just plaster the word unity over everything, that that doesn't do anything. C.S. Lewis once said this. He said, it's kind of funny, but he says, Everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. It's the same with unity, right? Unity. What a great idea. Unity. Yeah, until we find something to divide over. And so Paul prays in this passage for them that their hearts may be encouraged or strengthened, being knit together in love. What is this love based on? It's based on the full assurance and understanding of Christ himself. A lasting love, a unified love, is only possible where there is first an agreement on truth. If the Colossians listen to the false teachers and embrace these other sources of wisdom and knowledge, which we'll be looking at the next few weeks, if they go outside of Jesus, the church is in trouble. And so Paul is just relentlessly pointing to Christ in this book. He says, Christ, this is just a beautiful phrase, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What Paul is basically saying is that you can't get to the bottom of Jesus. The more you know about Jesus, the more you want to know about Jesus. The false teachers, on the other hand, they they say that the wisdom and knowledge is hidden in their little philosophies and secret mysteries. But no, Paul says, it's all hidden in Jesus. And it's not hidden to be concealed that no one can find it. It's hidden like treasure waiting for you to unearth it. For you to see it. For you to dive into the word of God and see the beauty of Christ. It's all there. Well, last is the why of Paul's praying. We see in verse 4 and 5. Paul says, I say this, he's praying this, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. You see, here we, really, we see again the purpose of this letter. I hope that you're starting to see it. One author described Colossians this way. He said, Colossians is a vaccination against heresy, not an antibiotic for those already afflicted. That's helpful. You see, on the one hand, Paul is rejoicing in the firmness of their faith, and yet on the other hand, Paul has a sword, and he's writing to ward off these enemies of the gospel by giving the truth. And what does he call the, the danger? He calls it plausible arguments." Well what, what is a plausible argument? It's, it's just a fine-sounding, eloquent, persuasive, yet entirely deceptive argument that when you believe it, it leads you away from Christ. You see, most of us, when we think of false teaching, we go straight to the blatant heresy. Jesus was created by God. That's a heresy. That's not true. And we need to be on guard. We need to know the truth. Sadly, even, there there, there is a member of our church right now who we're calling to repentance because she has embraced a heretical view of the gospel. And so what we're seeing in this text, this isn't superficial. This is real. This happens. But nevertheless, Satan is usually much more subtle. Satan usually deceives with smooth-sounding arguments, with with catchy little phrases, and frankly, by getting us so acclimated with error that we can't even see it anymore. I mean, there is just no end to the spin that Satan puts on his lies. In the abortion debate, for example, really swirling right now, the comeback right now is this, as, as I've been told this you're not pro-life, you're just pro-birth. Don't act like you care about human life. If you really cared about human life, you would first fix all the issues for the people who are already alive, then tell me you care about life. Says the people who weren't aborted, right? Says the people who were given life. Easy for them to say. This is just foolish, endless deception. And yet, that kind of sounds good when you first hear it. It's smooth. It's easy to hear. And we could go on with examples, but the point is this. I hope it's clear that plausible arguments, what do plausible arguments do? They camouflage themselves as truth, and they get eaten up by those who aren't discerning. They really do. And so, brothers and sisters, you need to examine what you hear. You need to examine what you listen to. You need to examine who you are listening to. Pray for discernment. Cling to the word of God. Understand, Paul isn't writing this passage. He's not praying that Christians will start winning more arguments. He's not praying that we'll get a bigger platform. He's praying that we and you as God's people will stay rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. So as we come to a close, as we've seen the credentials, so to speak, for ministry this morning, who's signing up? Who's signing up for ministry? You might need to take a deep breath, but if you're a believer in Christ, this is what you've been called to. God has saved you, and he has equipped you to strengthen the church, to love the body of Christ. But what I want you to know is that you are not alone in that. I know that in my own life, I fail so often to have these credentials. I I swerve away from suffering. I avoid the conversation I know will be awkward. I'm timid to speak, distracted, lazy in prayer. I know. But understand that this is why we, this is why you, this is why I need the gospel. We don't only need the gospel for our salvation. We need the gospel for service. Only the constant reminder that I was lost. I was once living for myself. I was blindly running toward destruction. And just at that moment, God launched an invasion. Jesus came down. He took what my filthy hands had done, and he nailed it to his. You can live for that kind of Savior. You can suffer for that kind of God. And so, church, may we continue looking to Jesus and by his grace become the faithful ministers that he's called us to be. Let's pray.